what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. My main task this week is outlining the four projects I aim to tackle between now and the end of the summer. The first project is creating a training program based on my book and all of the research I've done since completing the book. The second is an experiment in video essays. The third is a project to decide if I want to apply to grad schools in the fall. Applying, if I decide to do it, will be its own project. And finally, the fourth project is my next major podcast series, an exploration of how science fiction imagines the future of work. Now, typically, I would not outline four projects at once. I prefer to work in shorter time periods on fewer projects. But I know each of these projects needs some significant time to bake. And plus, I'm just having a really hard time choosing. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. stuck on what to do now and what to do later is not a me problem, of course. I've facilitated a bunch of workshops on planning and setting or not setting goals over the last five years. And without fail, people get stuck on choosing what to work on. We want to do it all and we want to do it right now. When I have all cylinders firing, I can juggle more than most, but I haven't had all cylinders firing in quite a while. In the final episode of 2022, I mentioned that this year was gonna be a real challenge for me. Coming out of the fog of depression, acute anxiety, and emotional burnout, I feel a lot better on a day-to-day basis than I did even a year ago. But my mental emotional state is still extremely fragile. If I'm overly ambitious and try to tackle too much before I make a full recovery, I'm just going to end up in the same spiral that wrecked me. So yeah, I'm struggling with the same thing that many people I've worked with get stuck on. Making choices among the dizzying array of potential outputs for my energy. It's an archetypal experience of the 21st century economy. We have so many options that choosing always feels like a loss. A loss of opportunity, of possibility, of security. Philosopher Byung-Chul Han argues that we live in an achievement society. Instead of being kept in line through the discipline of institutions or the control of surveillance, society is organized through a plethora of possibilities. All of those possibilities don't add up to more freedom, though. Opportunities present themselves more like imperatives than options. Han contrasts the achievement society with Foucault's description of the disciplinary society. 
In the disciplinary society, the threat of punishment is used to enforce norms and maximize productivity. Writing in 1975, Foucault describes the culture of industrial and early consumer capitalism. By the 80s and 90s, though, consumer capitalism had taken on a new cultural flavor. We were less interested in conformity and more interested in choice, or at least the perception of choice. As it always does, capitalism appropriated this shift. On the surface, we had more options than ever. Women entered the workforce in droves, queer people gained more visibility, more people went to college, and new careers sprang out of new industries. Plus, we had more products to choose from and more ways to signal our identities through what we consumed. But below the surface, choice had become a new paradigm for productivity. While in a disciplinary society, we should work hard to earn a good living, the Achievement Society triumphs all the ways we can earn a living. The Disciplinary Society reminds us that we should buy a house in the suburbs, have 2.5 children, and serve on the PTA. The Achievement Society encourages us to explore all the possible ways we might live, love, and serve. Han writes, quote, The positivity of can is much more efficient than the negativity of should. Therefore, the social unconscious switches from should to can. Now, it's that can that kept me in line growing up, kept me achieving all A's. It made me pursue excellence in sports and then in music. Can convinced me to fill my college semesters with an ungodly number of credits. And if that sounds like can is just another form of shoulds and supposed tos, that's because it is. Han says the can does not revoke the should. Can simply becomes a better, more efficient way to discipline our behavior. The anxiety of conformity and discipline is transformed into the anxiety of choice and possibility. That's not to say we'd be better off with fewer choices, but instead that the perception of unlimited choice obfuscates how we are guided into outcomes that continue to uphold the status quo even in their variety. Han also sees the impact of the Achievement Society on our mental health. In the 20th century, psychoanalysis was based on the assumption that repression and negation were at the root of psychosocial challenges. We attempt to conquer our desire and tend to unconsciously self-discipline ourselves to conform to norms. But in the 21st century, we deal much less with repression and negation than we do with a surplus of possibilities. Han asserts that our, quote, contemporary psychic maladies such as depression and burnout result from an excess of positivity. Okay, yeah, I did a philosophical double take on that one too. What he means is that in different ways, today's mental health conditions might be seen as the product of the inability to say no. He writes, quote, they do not point to not being allowed to do anything, but to being able to do everything. 
Finally, Han describes another familiar complication of the Achievement Society, the crisis of gratification. Okay, all right, that, that's probably not actually familiar. You don't call it that, I don't either. But I think it'll sound familiar once I explain the concept. Before the global north largely became secular, various religious teachings offered moral frameworks based on winning the favor of God. They gave relatively clear instructions about what was acceptable and what was not acceptable behavior. Within those teachings, people learned to put off desire and reward until Judgment Day. They traded earthly obedience for heavenly gratification. But as our cultures have tended to become more secular, this framework broke down. We no longer toiled or avoided temptation to win God's favor. We might not even believe such a thing is possible anymore. Without that structure, without the clear path to gratification, even if a lifetime away, we feel compelled to do more and more, chasing acknowledgement and validation that's no longer available to us in any lasting way. And many of us, especially my fellow recovering overachievers, internalize the compulsion to do more and more from an early age. My mom always jokes that I was just born this way. That's Maura Ahrens-Mealy, the author of The Anxious Achiever and host of the podcast by the same name. I've always been super driven in whatever I do. I was just a very intense child and toddler and um, never stopped. For the record, my mother would describe me the same way. You know, it's that it's that sense of like, the day is packed. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And that's the good part of it. The hard and stressful part of it is where the anxiety comes in, in that the ambition feels like it's never enough and it never stops. You climb one mountain that you thought, oh, once I climb this mountain, I'll be done. And yet, of course, the next mountain is right around the corner and you're instantly focused on that next mountain. So I think the ambition that goes along with being an anxious achiever is such an amazing and intrinsic part of us, but it can also really impact our lives if we don't acknowledge it and look it squarely in the face. And that has definitely been my journey and something I still struggle with every day. Now, I think I'm probably more of an existentialist than Mora, but I agree with what she's getting at here. While I don't believe that ambition or striving is baked into my essential self, I do believe we all are motivated to create in one way or another. And the drive to create is part of what makes us human, and part of what we create is ourselves. It's in the creation, the becoming, that we can easily get caught up in the mess of can and the conformity of should. If we don't acknowledge the structural reasons why we strive, we can get in a lot of trouble. I really am really bad at not pushing through the fear and doing it anyway and asking for help and saying no. I think that I I come from a scarcity model. I'm a big believer in 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 family systems theory mm. that basically says we emerge from our family of origin having become very accustomed to playing a role in that family and um most of us just keep playing that role unless 
we do some hard work to ask ourselves if that's the role we want to play. And for me, I was very much the older child of a single mom who was mature before her years and took on a lot. Again, family of origin, upbringing, role in the family, where if I didn't seize on an opportunity, I wasn't going to have enough. And that is the model that I I still work from, unfortunately, which means that I am often in a state of agitation because I've said yes to something that really is too much or is really overwhelming to me, or I would have just been better off saying no. The good news is (laughs) that I actually, and, and so what I used to do is I would say yes to something and then I would cancel. Mm hmm. And that was a horrible pattern. I don't know if any of your listeners can relate to that, right? Is I would say yes, and I would say like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to show up. It's going to be okay. And I'd either procrastinate or avoid because my perfectionism would kick in and my anxiety, or I would just get too scared and cancel. So that's not a good way to operate. So I've really been doing some work in, the, in really just the past year or two and trying to say no and trying to really flip my inner dialogue and say, Maura, it's going to be okay. There's going to be another opportunity. Here's the perfect example of what Han described. Can encourages us to say yes, to fit more in, to see every favor as an opportunity in wait. But that can is implied by a should just below the surface. Maura said that she learned scarcity patterns early in life, that if she didn't seize an opportunity, she wouldn't have enough. So every request looks like an opportunity, and because she should seize every opportunity, it implies that she can. Ought implies can is an ethical principle, first described by Immanuel Kant. It means that ethically, if you really should do something, you first must be able to do it. I have no ethical obligation to run the race I signed up for if my foot is broken. I'm not a quitter, I'm just injured, right? Unfortunately, we get this all twisted up, especially us anxious achievers. When we sense that latent should, we rationalize our ability to meet the obligation. If my brain tells me I should run, even if my foot is broken, I'm liable to believe that I can run the race with a broken foot. Now, that's a really silly example, but hopefully you get the idea. See if you can spot the principle of ought implies can in this story Maura shared about her consultation with a financial advisor. Gosh, even this morning, I I was on the call with a potential financial advisor because I need, you know, help planning my money and... um. He, he was just really doing a bad job. It was clear that he hadn't heard anything I'd asked of our previous call and, and it was just not a fit. And I, and he was going through his presentation and I actually said to him, you know what? This isn't going to work for me. Let me give you back your half an hour. Wow. And I cut the, sh- the call short and I, I, as I started the call, I went in there thinking, I don't want to be rude. I don't want to make him feel bad. You know, all of the all of the shoulds and the anxiety of like, it's my responsibility for this person. And then I just thought, you're too busy. Like, let this go and 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 be 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 
kind, but like, stop this. <laughs> I was kind of proud of myself. Did you hear it? When the call got started, Mora believed she shouldn't be rude or make the advisor feel bad by cutting the call short. She could stay on the line for the hour, so she should. Then she realized this was false. She didn't have an obligation to manage herself to save the advisor's emotions, even if every ounce of her social conditioning told her otherwise. I asked more if she had any personal policies or frameworks for helping her confront this tendency. I have this sort of three-part rubric, which is silly but helpful. It is so not silly. It's brilliant. The first is, I call it PACE, P-A-C-E, PLACE and space. (laughs) Pace, place, and space. And so this has been what's really helpful for me. And I'm now, gosh, so I'm 46. So I'm 16 years in to working really intentionally. Pace is really, really important. I think a lot of us feel like we can't have the career we want, or we can't, quote, cut it, because we don't get to set the pace of our workday. And the sort of energy at which we approach things, right? So pacing is about when I come sit at my desk in the morning, what does my ideal day look like? Is it crazy busy, full of meetings and being extroverted and being always on until 5 p.m.? Is it meetings in the morning and then I have some quiet time? Is it like I'm an accountant and I'm going to work really, really intensely for part of the year and then build in a couple months where I don't have to work so intensely? Am I the kind of person who really, really, I mean, the pandemic has shown a lot of us this, do I really need that hour in the afternoon to go exercise? And can I try to build that in? Like my husband, he's so funny. He's a napper. And, um, you know, he's lucky he's at the point in his career where he like builds in his nap every day. I'm too. So thinking about the pace is 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 so powerful. And even if you are not in a position where you have control over your schedule. You have a little bit more control than you think, right? You can really try to grab that quiet hour. I think that people understand this. And so think about your ideal pace and work towards it. Place is is pretty obvious. But again, in our new world of work, even more <laughs> full of choices. But place is really how do I want to work? You know, you'll hear, you'll, I have friends who are like, I never wanted to sit at a desk. I knew that wasn't me. Right. And, and that's cool. They know that some people, my editor friends are never happier than when they sit alone all day and have a lot fewer meetings and are more independently focused in their work. Do you want to work in a big blessing office or do you really love working from home and you never want to stop? Thinking about place is important because we humans, we're creatures of routine and keeping up good mental health is a lot about routine and building an infrastructure. And so place where I find myself most weeks and how it suits me is really important. And then space. Space is really about, to me, managing your energy with people and with demands. And so like right now I'm promoting my book. I said, I'm like, I said to everyone, like, I'm open for business. My calendar is your calendar. There are three months in which I'm going to give this everything. I'm going to have no space. 
And frankly, my relationship with my kids might suffer a little bit. My relationship with my husband might suffer. The house is a disaster. My my manicure is not happening, like all the lovely things, but that's okay for three months. A lot of us need a lot more space from other people. A lot of us are really happy to go engage intensely every day. I look at people who show up in big companies in high management positions, and that's their whole day, and I am in awe of them. I need a lot more space than that. So that's how I think about it. I'd heard Maura talk before about her challenges with social anxiety and extreme introversion. Yet Maura's out there giving talks, interviewing A-list podcast guests, and making the rounds on her book tour. In what feels like a previous life now, I was doing many of the same things. There were a number of times when I was teaching about social media or podcasting when someone would say to me, this all sounds great for you, Tara, but... I'm an introvert. What advice do you have for me? Um, I don't know. I experienced debilitating social anxiety, and now I know I'm autistic. I've always identified as extremely introverted. So I don't know what to tell another introvert. Social anxiety, introversion, and the effects of autism are all things I experience off the stage, but not on it. Um, there's an Australian comic, Jordan Raskopoulos, who calls us the shy louds. I do not get stage fright. That's Jordan Raskopoulos at TEDx Sydney in 2019. So people find it really odd when I tell them that I have an anxiety disorder. How on earth can you have a problem with anxiety, Jordan, when you are so confident on stage? Well, see, the problem is I am only confident on stage. If you meet me afterwards or in the street, you will see me as a timid, mumbly wreck who is probably lost for words. When people describe the sensation of stage fright, they often say things like, I'm nervous, I might be lost for words, people are judging me, everything is racing in my head, and I feel like I'm going to freeze. And I know those feelings, I just don't get them on the stage. I get them when I'm talking to someone and I don't know what their name is. I get them if I go to a party and I turn up too early or too late or overdressed or underdressed or if I don't see anybody I know. I get them in most conversations, particularly conversations with people I don't know very well. I get terrified when I have a chatty taxi driver. (laughs) Or hairdresser. (laughs) Or plumber. I get terrified, like I said, in most conversations. I'm terrified of checking my email, and I am absolutely petrified about talking on the telephone. Yeah, yeah. I don't get stage fright. I get life fright. A lot of us, though, who are introverted and who have social anxiety are huge hams and like the spotlight, and I count myself among them. It is this weird dichotomy. So it's such a fascinating concept where you are so driven by your work and um, by whatever you feel like you were meant to do on this earth, whether it's being a stand-up comic or for me, you know, talking about mental health at work or in my previous career, helping political causes that I believed in and issue advocacy causes and feminist causes move forward, that you're willing 
to sort of suck it up and manage it. And it takes practice. So I think there's a huge myth that people like us aren't sparkly. (laughs) We can be very sparkly. But if we don't build in recovery time, right, if we don't build in what we need around the sparkly edges is when we get into real problems. If we don't build in what we need, how many of us really do that? How many of us allow ourselves to acknowledge what we need and make decisions based on those needs? How many of us negotiate those needs into contracts? How many of us are upfront with clients about what we need to do our best work for them? Like Jordan Raskopoulos, I'm most confident on stage or here behind the mic. But before I step on stage, I'm often rendered mute by the bustle of people, the buzz of 20 different conversations, and the mounting social pressure that feels like electricity on my skin. To be able to do what I love, I've learned to tell event organizers that I need to be the day's first speaker to reduce the amount of pre-stage time. A green room can feel like a godsend. I've learned to let a few key people know ahead of time that I might be standing in a corner or sitting alone in the hall with my face in my phone so that they can answer questions if they're asked. And frankly, I've learned to take Sean with me whenever I can. Every introvert should find themselves an extremely extroverted security blanket. Now, getting people to believe me, to take what I tell them at face value and not assume that I'm exaggerating, that's a whole other issue. And in all this, it's possible to take on more responsibility than is ours to take on. I asked Maura how she thinks about what individuals are responsible for and what organizations are responsible for. I 100% think that it is whatever institution you're part of's responsibility to do work better. Mm-hmm. It is not your responsibility to fix the shitty culture that you work in. Understanding your anxiety and how it shows up for you every day may lead to a conclusion of this place sucks and I have to leave. Yeah. <laughs> and data data show also that a lot of this stuff is extremely systemic. It's linked to bias, it's linked to racism. It's linked to class structures. It's linked to all of the toxic patriarchy. It's linked to all of the toxic systems that have created the work world of today. You know, if you are a person of color, if you are someone in a group that has less traditional status in an organization, if you're not a white man, you will experience bias that will foster anxiety. How could it not? And the data shows this. So in no way am I saying this is your job to fix it, because I don't believe that. And the workplace mental health movement, I think, is at an interesting intersection right now where you have companies trying to do the right thing. You know, unfortunately, I worry that buying an app subscription and having a telehealth option lets companies off the hook for doing the really hard work of fixing (laughs) how they work, fixing culture, fixing the always-on nature, 
fixing poor labor practices, right? Fixing um, unfair wages. So I think that that's a bigger question that everyone has to grapple with. Like, I don't want workplace mental health to end up like greenwashing, right? I want it to really help change systems. As we wrapped up, I wanted to know how Mora envisioned the future of work through the lens of mental health. I want people to stop viewing mental health challenges as the weakness and something to be ashamed of. And I think for that to happen, we have to really, really start speaking up and, um, that's really, that's like a profound narrative change in this country that has to happen. Anxiety is normal. Feeling depressed is normal. Almost 90% of people at some point in their lives will be mentally ill. Now, that doesn't mean they will have a diagnosed chronic syndrome like I do with my bipolar 2. No, but they will be mentally ill. That is the human condition. (laughs) Life is hard and people are messy. Not only that, anxiety is a normal and natural human emotion that we need. We bring it to work. We need to integrate it and normalize it into our daily work. My biggest wish is that people stop acting mindlessly and acting out their anxieties mindlessly on each other because it creates so many problems at work. Everything from micromanaging to overwork to people feeling silenced. Anxious managers, anxious leaders, anxious workers bring anxiety and toxic behaviors that can be stopped if we just take a minute (laughs) to learn about our anxiety, to learn about our mental health and pay attention to it and manage it. And so, you know, my biggest wish is that this stuff isn't seen like something to celebrate in May. Oh, we're so special. We have mental illness, but it's seen as part of the human condition that we bring to work every day and we have to integrate. Mora calls on us to stop acting mindlessly, to quit acting out our anxieties on each other. I wholeheartedly agree. And I'll add to it, we must also stop acting out our anxieties on ourselves. Byung Chul Han sees the self-harm inherent to living in the achievement society. We compete with ourselves, he writes. I succumb to the destructive compulsion to outdo myself over and over. This self-constraint, which poses as freedom, has deadly results, he writes. Han's work reminds us that it's not choice or opportunity that's the problem. It's the way we let the multitude of choices and opportunities in front of us hijack our mindfulness. We stop thinking critically about our options and succumb to their influence. In the process, as Mora points out, we can do harm to ourselves, to others, and to the work we love. I'll always identify as an achiever, but like Mora, my goal is to act with intention and mindfulness to meet my own needs and to avoid doing harm to others. 
find out more about Mora Aaron's Mealy at moraam.com. And pre-order your copy of The Anxious Achiever wherever you buy books. Plus, you can listen to The Anxious Achiever wherever you listen to What Works. I'll be back in two weeks with an episode examining whether the proliferation of content around ethical business, bro marketing, and anti-capitalism is really resisting the status quo or merely upholding it in new ways. Now, this episode, like every episode, will go out in essay form on Thursday at explorewhatworks.com and in my newsletter, What Works Weekly. Sign up to get it delivered to you free of charge by going to explorewhatworks.com slash weekly. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a boutique production agency for podcasters who are changing our assumptions about culture, leadership, and business. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock people. And the Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation.